Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Okay. Ian, you have a gigantic coffee this morning. I do. Uh, I kind of really needed it. Um, uh, for those who don't know, uh, I have two young kids at home. Uh, and two young kids equals uh, not that many nights of uninterrupted sleep. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I remember those days. My kids are older now. The sleepless nights are gone, um, and I get more regular sleep now. I like I have like a fairly reasonable day. It yeah. happens. Yeah, we are we are fortunately like not in this not in the sleepless nights period anymore. Uh, but just the like somebody's up, somebody else is up. Like is <laughs> and the dog. The dog yeah, probably oh God, participates dog. in this. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Don't even get me started on the dog. Yeah. I I love my kids. I mostly kind of like my dog <laughs> uh, but but yeah there there are definitely some mornings where I think like I got here this morning and I texted you and I was like I need a giant coffee <laughs> yes and I, I yes we we accomplished our goal of the morning of getting you a gigantic coffee uh, so we have a we have a guest today um, very special that's right this is a first for this is a first for the podcast of small differences. Um, so we are going to take on a subject that we don't feel like we have a ton of expertise in, which is uh, ethics and data science. And we brought on like the person that I personally feel the most comfortable talking about this with, uh, who's John Taylor. Um, he's a friend of mine from way back to high school. Um, he's also like incredibly well read on philosophy, um, data techniques, um, and uh, AI in particular. Uh, John, how's it going? Hi, Otis. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? All right. Uh, so I am the manager of analytics and data science at Iovation. So we're a fraud mitigation software as a service platform recently acquired by TU uh, TransUnion. Um, my background is strange. Uh, I have uh, degrees in philosophy and psychology. I minored in uh, computer information systems. I went to grad school uh, in logic and computation. So, yes, I'm uh, very multidisciplinary in my interests, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it comes to this particular question, um, I, I have to caveat that I am not an ethicist. I didn't even study ethics. Ethics was not my primary focus in grad school. It was uh, philosophy of science, epistemology, uh, mathematical logic, those sorts of subjects. So I'm told that everybody hates ethical philosophers anyway. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so I've dodged that bullet. But, but subsequently, um, I've found myself very much interested in, in ethics, particularly uh, stoic ethics, virtue ethics, things like that. But, you know, we can we can get into some of the ethical particulars. Yeah, what what sort of drives your your passion for the field? I see it as like part of living a good life, being comfortable with what you do. Uh, so, I guess I have selfish motives. I want to feel comfortable <laughs> in my life. That's I'm shocked by that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's partly the interest. Um, they're really tough issues. I find a lot of people don't want to engage them because they're so uncomfortable. Yeah, um, but particularly in the field that we work in, uh, the ascendance of data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Um, yeah, I, I, 
if, if it's the new oil uh, and it has all the power that implies uh, to affect people's lives, I think that uh, it demands a certain amount of, of respect when it comes to ethical consideration. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple interesting things in that. Like one is like I think if you tell a data scientist often it's a hard problem, then they're like more interested, not less interested. <laughs> um, and like you probably categorize well into that. Um, the, yeah, the other interesting thing is when we like I think a couple of years back, people really first started talking seriously about codifying. Um, like taking a having a Hippocratic oath for data science and things like that, and my my initial reaction was like, oh, like oaths and ethical guidelines, like lawyers and doctors and actuaries have, those are really very like moral professions that that really works for them. But the you know my 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 second reaction was like, oh, actually like those are dangerous professions, yeah. right? Like data science has kind of become dangerous. Yeah, there. I mean, there's. There's kind of a neat counterexample of that, uh, like not uh, not counterfactual, but like but like kind of counterexample. And uh, so, my undergrad in Canada uh, was in uh, the engineering space. Uh, and engineers in Canada, when when you graduate, uh, you, you you actually go through a form of of like the the uh, Hippocratic oath. Uh, it's called uh, the Iron Ring ceremony. What? Yeah. Um, this is not. This is an actual education uh, yeah, thing, no, no, and not is, an Avatar: The Last Airbender. No, episode. no, no. This is. You didn't go to Miskatonic U. Uh, no, no. This is. This is. Uh, this is an actual thing. You can. You can look it up. Uh, everyone who graduates a Canadian university with with one of these degrees uh, has to go through this ceremony. Um, it's. Ceremony itself is, uh, I think, on on the order of about a hundred years old. Uh, Rudyard Kipling wrote it. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, and the the idea is basically uh, there was a so so uh, it comes out of uh, uh, out of there. There was this case in the early. I mean, I can't. I can't remember exactly when it was. Some somewhere in like the early 1900s to like 1910s, uh, where 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 uh, there was a large bridge project being built in uh, Quebec, and the design was faulty. Uh, and uh, when the bridge was close to complete, it collapsed uh, and 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 killed almost 100 workers. Uh, and they essentially tied it back to some some bad decisions in in the engineering design of the bridge itself mm-hmm. and so the point of the ceremony was not to like you know unlike the hippocratic oath or or or, or, or like any of the other like kind of I'm going to use a term here that people are going to kill me for but like any of the other licensing cartels oh, no, no. <laughs> like it's it, the 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 ceremony was not there to like inject liability onto you. Mm. It was there to remind you that like when you are building complex systems, like there are people out there who have to interact with them, and so if you make mistakes, like those mistakes have have consequences and costs that they're going to bear. That is an interesting example. Um, so why I think it's an interesting example is that it's not unusual in different professional ethics to have something like an inciting event. So, for instance, um, 
in research ethics uh, for human study, there's an infamous study uh, is the Tuskegee experiment. Mm-hmm. That was actually, uh, I believe, it was specifically called the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to only go on for something like six months. It went on for forty years, and they did not treat the subjects of the study. <clears throat> and it was, uh, I mean, ethically, it's a disastrous. Uh, you know, the the it was a research study specifically as it. You know the name would indicate to see how the progression of disease goes uh, if you don't do anything about it. And so they happen to be uh, African American sharecroppers. Um, it was a cohort of something like um, a few hundred, and of the few hundred, over half had syphilis. And they just strung them along, even though there was a treatment at the time. Uh, so this this actually helped launch uh, a lot of consideration ab- about ethics um, for human research, and this is partially why we have institutional review boards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in, in what I've wondered about our area of expertise is whether or not we have to wait for some horrific inciting incident, or we can point to enough pretty high-profile examples, of which I happen to have a list here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, 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 so maybe this, this gets into to what I think might be the first question, which is, like, why does this matter now? Mm-hmm. So um, I think that this matters now for the same reason why data science is a hot discipline to be in, Right. So what I mean by that is that uh, data science, because of the proliferation of machine-readable data that we have, and because of, um, okay, I'm trying to stay away from, uh, well, no, I'll say it, surveillance capitalism, Uh, because of increased automation, that is automation of jobs, but automation of essential goods, essential services um, that affect, directly affect human lives, which include things like potentially... um, automated warfare or drones you know those sorts of applications the whole of the the company palantir is basically what you're saying that's the (laughs) like facebook's the one that gets all of the pub but like to me actually the ones where like i'm i am like that scares me more are palantir products or or a little more innocuously um the automation of driving where because driving will inevitably um, involve crashes and some of which may involve decision making that trades off of lives you know the life of the driver and the life of, uh, of other people that is a pretty directly uh, ethical question the particulars of how you decide to make decisions in that context implement some version of an ethic if you will in- implicitly so uh, I think those sorts of things Surveillance capitalism, the question of how do we treat private data, um, the attention economy in general, the sorts of um, uh, results of directing people's attention aggressively one way or another and the social impacts that come along with that. Um, Honestly, maybe a way to look at it is I like to divide it into what you do and how you do it when it comes to data science and machine learning and and so on. So... so, so I mean, one one question that I that I kind of am left with 
with respect to that is, I mean, we've been doing things like credit scoring mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, is that different? Or, John's literally been doing it uh, for for, or, for, for or, three years, right? For, uh, <laughs> well, for risk scoring, definitely, yeah. but that's more of a fraud application. Not uh, So, yes, you could say I'm in the superset of fraud rather than credit yeah. directly. But mm-hmm. So, it, it, I mean, you know, like like lo- loans have been based off of off of FICO scores for, for, for many, many years now. So, like, is that a different thing? Is that the same thing? Uh, if it's if it's the same thing, does it mean we really should have been approaching these questions much earlier? And and like maybe it's actually we're kind of running late in the game to to do this kind of stuff. How do you how do you think about that? Yeah. So um, I, I think that yes, these things have been around for quite a while, and that um, not unusual. The, the applications outpace ethical thinking quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure Einstein has a good line about this. Um, so yes, I'd say certainly there and, and talking to people who do more direct actual credit scoring sorts of work, especially recently talking to my, uh, compatriots at TU, they do have that concern about how do you, well, so first off is, is the application valid? Do people need information to make loans? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, I would think that there's a good reason to have scores in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the, the, to separate it into concerns of what you're doing and, uh, you know, as opposed to something like, oh, I'm in the business of uh, voter suppression. That itself, doesn't matter how you do it, that itself may be an ethical question. Mm-hmm. So uh, for what it's worth, at least, and it, these things are debatable, I do think that, that at least the application has some, um, uh, some validity to it. Then how do you do that? Well, there are protected classes. They, there are legal obligations, some pretty heavy legal obligations that yeah. they're under. But yeah. do, you, do you think that that like I I found that like there when I worked in in um, like compliance in the analytical influenced compliance environment that the existence of protected classes wasn't like close to enough in terms of like guiding um, ethical behavior and a lot of. A lot of unethical, like things that you would regard as discriminatory, or like things that were below below the line, could be dressed up as like things that we were you were doing um, in service of protected classes. When you when you delve deeply into it, it's like we're trying to do the minimum amount to shut up the protected class, um, and that's or to get not get sued by the protected class, and those definitely view like those veer off pretty quickly yeah that's a great call out so let's quickly make some distinctions here Mm -hmm. what is legal is not necessarily what's ethical right i'm sorry Uh, let's define like protected class in in united states legal terms is i don't know what the technical definition is but it amounts to like um it can be women it can be racial minorities it can be um linguistic minorities and it can be religious minorities in the right context my my understanding is it, it you have to be on a list like there is a list of of, of who the protected classes yeah, there, are. Yeah, there there is like a, a the EEOC um, keeps track of this and they like they enter new things onto the list. Um, you can you can become a protected class mm-hmm. um, through uh, either becoming disabled or I will do so on April 29th of next year when I turn forty. Mm-hmm. Um, so. 
There's lots of white males also on the list of protected classes is another issue with that, like using that as like the foundation of your ethical framework, right? Is that there's lots of people who are actually powerful and quite well off that can use this to their, like they can manipulate this this system yes. to their advantage. So, so the question of what's legal is, is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the question of what is ethical is definitely... Like, for instance, what, what is the underlying concern for why we have protected classes? Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of prejudice, right? That uh, you shouldn't be allowed to basically enforce a prejudicial uh, system. Uh, there's some good books on this, actually, in terms of, of our context. Um, there's a, a book called Weapons of Math Destruction mm-hmm. by Kathy O'Neill, also known, I believe, as Math Babe. Uh, she, but um, she goes over exactly this sort of concern and how you're able to manifest prejudice in a model unknowingly. It doesn't take a bad actor. It doesn't take someone with ill intent to to do this. Yeah, and I like I, I actually I, I have like an example of of that if like it could be germane to the discussion. But like for most. Most companies, if they're sued or they're like cons- like if they want to evaluate whether their hiring policies are racist or not, they're going to like check themselves off against the ex- like the standard for that particular company in a g- general geographic um, industry. And either the government or some company they've hired to evaluate that will use a model to like to define what the expected number of protected of a protected class hires there are uh, for that company. And what that comes down to is like they're the question they're actually asking is like, are you more or less racist than, than, everybody, than else. everybody else, right? And which I mean, if you think about it, that is probably a like like check your like check your standards of fairness, right? Like, do you think that that is an acceptable standard for whether or not a company is behaving in a in a bad fashion with regard to a protective class? Maybe, maybe not. Um, you definitely are like separating that out from the issue of racism in general, right? Like that is using a, like an acceptable level of racism as the as the bar. Yeah, community standards. Um, so, I mean, law. It's not unusual to fix things to. Uh, um, to basically like a community standard. It, a lot of it is a formalization of different community standards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for instance, uh, it, you, it, there aren't questions as to whether or not uh, a company should be able to surveil you, generally speaking, on their premises, like a, a brick and mortar, mm-hmm. right? This is not something that generally comes up um, you know, too often. But if you push these examples far enough, uh, to the edge cases where you know this, this is something that we do not implicitly accept, then that's exactly the sort of pushback you'll you'll start get receiving pushback because you've gone beyond the community's standards. The uh, an example of this actually online and uh, one that is near and dear to me is the Facebook study on emotional contagion, right? So Facebook, uh, this was some years, few years ago now, um, they. Had decided that they wanted to explore whether or not the content of your feed, uh, when properly manipulated, can influence your affect, your emotions. So, uh, what they did was they had treatments, different treatments, wherein they remove positive uh, stories, positive content from your feed, uh, 
in some cases and remove negative in some other cases. And I believe they had baseline you know, comparison or uh, control. And uh, this resulted in an uproar when they uh, when they published their, their results. Uh, and I happen to be a uh, second degree contact of one of the primary authors of that study. And I had concerns because at least my background, right, from psychology in particular, there are things you consider before you do a study like that. Um, adverse impact is one of these things. Informed consent is one of these things. And they didn't They didn't do any of that. They didn't do any of that? That, that amazes me because actually that study, I happen to know, had um, IRB, which is like the uh, – like the – like I took – I. I took IRB classes and ran IRB programs for a year. It was tedious and thorough. And they noted they were an exception. They, they so I should know they, they did consider it. It was considered, but it, they're the usual sorts of criteria that you're so, supposed to fulfill for the IRB were put to the side because they saw this primarily not as a, an academic study. It was a business study, basically. And I'm just summarizing here. There, there are details here. So we get a kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, um, have, and I don't know how long we will. Uh, we, we've got a bit of an ex- a business exception. Yeah. yeah. So we're turning into some of the, like, yeah. evaluation of institutions designed to yeah. induce morality. But that, that particular detail shows me exactly what IRB is for. Yeah. And it's exactly the thing that Ian was talking about earlier where it is like this is this is there to put um, this is there to put liability on you, not to actually improve the ethical yeah. de- decision making. Yeah, so or it's actually to remove it from the publisher. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 to kind of take take a step back, if I can kind of summarize like like where we got to here, it's kind of this understanding that the the legal system is designed to figure out like you uh, as uh, uh, as an entity who lives in this country with these laws as they are written like are uh, 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 are you acting correctly or 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 consistently within within that framework but then there's the separate question which is like as a society of people who need to all live together, uh, what is the framework that we actually want? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 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 so like I feel like that takes us back to 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 the question that that you brought up, John, about like okay, so you know what kind of applications are appropriate that we should actually be building. Uh, and what should we not be building? And then What's how the f- should we be doing those things? Yeah, and I'd, I'd love for you to discuss the frame, like talk with us about the frameworks yeah. you would use because, and and I think this is relevant because because yeah. because if if I can take away one thing so far from what we've already said, it's that I cannot use the legal system to determine whether I should be building something or not. You, you cannot use right. a racist uh, legal system to protect yourselves, like to not do more racism. That yeah. is probably yeah. like the thing. So, that like I would, you know, I I would I would like to build applications that are useful and valuable to society. So obviously, okay. So the the legal framework is 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 not the correct one. 
so like what is you know i i, I would kind of love to hear your thoughts of, of like okay well if i'm thinking about building an application like what is a good framework for me to start to evaluate whether like that is a good idea or not <laughs> Yeah. So uh, to me, this is the heart of it, really, because the legalities, you can be a terrible person and never break the law. Mm-hmm. The, the, so go do crimes, kids. Really, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's really insufficient, right? So um, maybe it's useful just quickly go over. So there are lots of frameworks. This is part of the problem, right? There's no one uncontroversial, you know, uh, universal framework framework for sure. these things. Yeah. yeah. But there no, are please give us the universal framework. <laughs> approaches, right? So um, there's, say, for instance, the contractarian approach, right? So this goes back to like Hobbes and the nature red and, and tooth and claw. We need laws to protect uh, and we need ethical rules to protect each other from each other. Like we need rule, a conduct mm-hmm. uh, to make life better for all of us. And I should mention, too, these are not mutually exclusive, these sorts of frameworks. There are interesting blends of these. There's the utilitarian approach, which is probably pretty intuitive to most people who are uh, mathematical background. If, if you do decision theory, there are implicit notions of, of utilitarianism you're already implementing. Me as your audience, like I basically got to utilitarianism and was like, anything more complicated than utilitarianism, I'm not sure we can reason correctly about. So I stopped reading at that point in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, there's some pretty is, serious problems with utilitarianism, but um, yeah. what is uh, uh, so for those of us who are who are philosophically uh, stupid, <laughs> what is utilitarianism exactly? Okay. So utilitarianism um, it, it goes back to a basic notion that what is good and what is bad is linked to what causes uh, either pain or pleasure in one of the earliest versions of it, but it quickly developed because, um, for instance, I believe the quote is, better to be Socrates unsatisfied than a pig satisfied. Mm-hmm. I think that was John Stuart Mill. So not all pleasures are the same, nor are they all moral, right? Uh, you can do some absolutely terrible things pursuing your pleasure, mm-hmm. for instance, um, uh, or things that, that don't respect your um doesn't develop you as a human being you can wallow in you know uh in in your pleasures in ways that that are problematic but uh so the basic idea though uh, the more more recent expressions of it have to do a lot with preference so uh if you have gone much into uh, microeconomic theory Mm -hmm. or if you've uh done a lot of decision theory you're what we're doing here is we're maximizing our individual utility collectively and what is good is what promotes the most utility for okay. most people right. yeah. utility effect. is happiness yeah. and yeah if you want to view economics basically is motivated by yeah. a pretty naive version of utility so so something like credit scoring would most likely fall fall into that bucket of, of you know essentially saying like this is a very useful application of this sort of thing it has po- it it has some positive feedback loops slash externalities for society in that hey now if I'm a little regional bank and I don't have a lot of data this 
gives me a way to underwrite loans and get liquidity out into my communities and help those communities build businesses. Right. Yeah. And this, this perspective, I think, is, is almost inevitable in what we do um, it, because of the disposition of the people in, in the business that we're in, but also because the distribution of benefit and harm is something that we try to quantify in one way or another in the terms of error, usually, mm-hmm. right? Or, or success, the, you know, or our notions of accuracy. It's baked into machine learning in a way, a utilitarian perspective. Um, so very natural to us. But beyond that, there, there are some issues with utilitarianism such as, well, okay, if uh, there's the, I believe there's Ursula K. Le Guin short story that uh, presents a utopia that is based on the premise that there is some child who is, com- who is tortured. Everyone else is just fine. But the fact that this child is uh, under this this uh, you know under these terrible conditions is a necessary condition for the rest of the society being happy. Mm-hmm. Well, the total utility was higher, so it's justified. It's the right thing to do. Uh, these things are hard to swallow um, for many people. That it seems counterintuitive that. If it's a sheer maximization problem, and it doesn't matter how you maximize it, uh, you know what human costs are associated with maximizing it. Yeah. So, so, so fair, fairness, like you can incorporate fairness into into utilitarianism, but it's like it it feels like a gaudy import, yeah. right? Like it it doesn't it doesn't feel like a natural part of the reasoning framework. Yeah. yeah. So it's so, much more complicated than this. So I'm, uh, these are cartoons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like you know just just as a as like a straw person, uh, like you, uh, raw utilitarianism would argue that Facebook is definitionally good because two billion people on the planet get benefit from it. Despite the fact that it may have allowed, uh, you know, external governments to destroy our democracy. Yes. So uh, you can imagine what how you count is at the heart of all of this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You note that I'm not going to dispute your 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 rhetorical phrasing of that, but. But, uh, but how you count matters a whole lot, right? And uh, there is a version of what some people term like free market fundamentalism that is like, by definition, what flourishes in the market is right. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that. That's, that's all you, you know, what, what, uh, what survives in that, in that framework is what should survive. We don't have any. We don't have any eighteen-year-old libertarians in the audience, so I don't think there's any of the yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so the key, though, if I'm if I'm working within within one of those framework within within this framework in particular, is that like I have to be very clear about how I'm defining costs and benefits, right? Yes. Like, like that's sort of where I need to push into to basically say, okay, I'm building an application that does X. I expect it to have Y benefit, and I expect it to have Z costs, and here is Y, and then I make my assessment based off of that. Yeah, and if you if you want to put guardrails on that, there's also deontological ethics, so Kantianism. They're, they're the ethics of duty, uh, sometimes they're described as that. So it's just a... Um, a theory of morality, and it, it takes some unpacking. But the point is, some things are inviolable. Um, you, you, if you, if everything is up for grabs, even no matter how you count things, there, if 
there is the possibility that in your pursuit of maximization, you will do things that you may not want to, like that intuitively violate your sense of uh, of, of morality. Mm-hmm. So the, the way that's usually termed here, and I have to actually pull out the quote because it's kind of convoluted, is act only according to the maxim whereby you can at the same time will that that, that should become a universal law without contradiction. So that's called the categorical imperative. But uh, the idea is that you can't consistently will, for instance, that people uh, steal as an agent, as a human rational agent. You can't will that that be the you know, universal law. So the this is you know the categorical imperative is often like you know how would you feel if somebody else did that? Mm-hmm. Like that's the. That, that, that's the the child the childish version of of that. Yeah, though it's it's more like as a rational agent, you can't consistently will that. So it's it's supposed to be in some kind of bedrock sort of uh, of what it means to be a rational agent. And the pool of people that you're considering ethically is the pool of rational agents. It's a different perspective that I don't think is as immediately intuitive to people in the the business. But it, it d- does lead to things like, for instance. Um, you can't ethically you cannot treat another human being as a means to an ends that that they're an end unto themselves that's what it means for you to treat them as being truly autonomous does that make sense and it's and like uh just to push on that a little bit uh why so why why take that approach or why you know like like I, I assume this framework is internally consistent. Mm-hmm. So why is it that I can't treat another human? As, because you as cannot. As, again, this goes back to the categorical imperative, okay. or th- those sorts of categorical reasoning. So you, as an autonomous person, cannot will that it be universally the case that uh, the that you treat others as everyone treats others as ends. Or you know means unto your own ends. Does that make sense? So again, like you would not, would you would not assent to being treated like furniture, mm-hmm. right? Where you uh, you would not willingly give up your autonomy. I mean, I'm I'm not probably making the best case for this. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, no. So I I, I I'm like I. I'm I'm more pushing on this because like I want to understand like what the underpinnings of this actually are. Yeah. So let me uh, skip to Rawls's perspective uh, like, because that's a little easier to. <laughs> well, so so I mean just to just to kind of like wrap sure. my thought is it is it that like that like I as an autonomous being cannot treat other humans as as implicitly non-autonomous because there is a moral issue with that mm-hmm. or or is it i as an autonomous human being cannot treat other humans as non-autonomous because then there because then there uh, uh there's no consistency within the system it's the latter okay. so it's not a consequentialist framework right. so this is part of why it might be feel alien to people who are used to utility functions yeah it's not um, it's not something where you evaluate things in terms of what happens yeah yeah it's it's like it's like basically saying that there's a logical inconsistency uh-huh. if i'm saying i'm autonomous but i'm but like but i'm treating everyone else as though they're not right right because because then like why is my point of view like like why why 
should my point of view take precedence over everybody else's, mm-hmm. which essentially means, well, if everyone else is the same as me, then they also have to be autonomous. Yeah. And, so as a and community so, of rational agents, yeah, yes. Yeah, and, and, and so then I cannot push principles onto them that would remove their autonomy because I would never accept those principles yeah. myself. Yeah. A, a way to make it easier to think about is to think about what John Rawls did last century with, with some of these ideas, right? Yeah. So what he did is he he did uh, he said, okay, imagine this. You just wipe away the slate clean. You don't know if you're going to be disabled. You don't know if you're going to be a person of color. You don't know if you're going to be male or female. This is like the initial position, right? Yeah. What system of laws... Or what system would you design not knowing beforehand where you're going to end up? Yeah. Right? So what that does is it forces you to get to the, like, uh, the question of, uh, and, and, you know, this is not obviously pure, you know, rational, a pure, whatever uh, perspective on this, but it does force you to consider what you would assent to, like uh, where you are not already in the mix uh, with your properties being what they are and and so on and this is his version of how do you make a just system right you can't pre prejudice it prejudge it uh by basically trying to smuggle in you know benefits for yourself beforehand because you know that you're say a white man or something like that okay so 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 this would seem to me to be a very reasonable framework for if you are working on like ad retargeting or so, or something like that, to to like evaluate how 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 you were approaching that that problem, right? Because like I know whenever I think about about that 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 kind of field, and I've never worked in uh, like in like ad retargeting. So much models. easier to be ethical about fields that uh, yeah, you've never worked really, in, by the way. Very, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I mean, but but at the same time, like. I'm not one of those people who think advertising is inherently evil. It's without it, it's kind of really hard to find out about stuff that I might be interested in. Uh, As a, as a, for instance, I never watch commercials on TV anymore. And as a consequence of that, I never know what movies are coming out that I might want to see. Which is a legitimate thing that you wish that you had. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, I actually kind of miss that (laughs) because like, I actually don't really have movies in my life anymore outside of Netflix because of this problem. You can go see Captain Marvel with me when it comes out. I don't <laughs> like the Marvel movies. <laughs> um, so one thing I should note, too, is these are ethical frameworks. There are, there's a realm of applied ethics that tries to get these. These are theoretical frameworks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. There's a lot yeah. of work to be done to get from the theoretical framework to like, yeah. okay, what about now today in this yeah. circumstance? Well, do, you, it, it, do you think you need an ethical framework to do... To, to like make it so that you're making decisions that you're comfortable with? I think it's mind tools. It's a way to be able to, yeah. you know, to field problems. So uh, I, I should cover the last bit here, which is virtue ethics. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I mean, just to, just, just to play on that for a second, like this kind of feels to me a lot uh, like, like Charlie Munger's mental models for – that, that like he advocates that people use for for like investing and and yeah. and, and uh, decision making mm-hmm. uh, you know just like the world doesn't like is a complex system it doesn't actually like work this way but like it can be very very valuable to kind of like have mental models about how like little parts of the system work and like use that to 
kind of guide your guide guide your uh, uh, your your uh, decision making. You know, I, I'm certainly a pluralist about that. I don't I don't believe any of these are so. Again, it's it, these are all controversial. There are parts of it that may appeal and may not. Yeah. Um, the, the final one I, I want to mention just virtue ethics because I think actually I'm very sympathetic to this perspective. So it emphasizes the role of character um, and virtue in in moral philosophy. So uh, Aristotle, for instance, right, had some classic. You know, courage, for instance, is a, a kind of uh, a virtue. Um, wisdom is a kind of virtue. The, the the reason why I like it is that it gives you the robust notions, right? It's not like I'm I am uh, failing to be terrible. I, you know that that succeeding and being a good person is a different thing. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like the mm-hmm. meeting some minimum requirement for not being a terrible person is one thing, but I would rather like feel that I am, uh, it, well, in their terms, flourishing. They're they're uh, eudaimonia, I believe is the term. That, but human flourishing is the end point of that. They, mm-hmm. That's the interest in virtue ethics, and also it's very uh, practice, right? It's practice. It's applied. A virtue is is a capacity that mm-hmm. you exercise. It's not something that you like follow a rule. I've implemented the rule. That's all I have to do. It's a kind of practice, right? You you have to. It gets exercised through challenge. It gets exercised through different applications of uh, of well problems, like applying the your your capacities against particular problems. We- I like I like aspects of that. Okay. Which we try not to turn this into too much like talking about our work, but I love like Patreon ha- doesn't have core values at its company. Like uh, like they don't have like a list of things that we value and look for in employees. They have core behaviors. So like you like which look a lot like a value put into practice. But I, I kind of I like I I, I I find that really appealing, and that's a similar. Like a similar output is like you can feel like you're wholly adhering to a value and while acting in a way that is totally consistent, inconsistent with it. But the practice of it, like, is like if you like are evaluating yourself on the behavior portion of it, yeah. then that, that's like a yeah. much easier. So, thing so let's to be frank to. about it. Like a lot of these frameworks and a lot of like business ethics, for instance, or uh, these could be empty words. Yeah, right. well, protect. They're protecting you from accusations of wrongdoing, yeah. rather than or yeah. or their justification of wrongdoing, rather than um, than guidance. Yes, cover your ass. Yeah. It's not. It's not necessarily about being good, or uh, you know, just in this. Let's get. Well, everyone here is appropriately cynical, right? So. If you take it seriously, though, of like, well, I want to make sure, like Ian expressed, that the work that I'm doing is resulting in, in good. You know, I can't guarantee, for instance, though, none of us can, that it's like a pure good, right? But so there's a question of distribution of benefits and distribution distribution of harms that should be considered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, the way that I'm doing it is also good, right? And uh, that's where things like, you know, is there a notion of informed consent I should be using here? Is there a notion of um, data ownership u- questions or privacy and anonymity? Um is there are there questions of uh, securing that data if I do use it if if, if I am have a legitimate use case um, for using that data which, of which there are many um so uh, Clover Health yes you you guys have lots of information that is sensitive but it's put to I, I think humanly good use but you do have a duty I would argue to uh, to secure it 
Oh, that that is certainly true. <laughs> yeah, that is certainly true as well. And to go I mean, I, I mean, our uh, I I would argue our duty goes well beyond that. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, but but yes. Um, okay. So so as we kind of move into this, if I could sort of like summarize where we've gotten to so far. Uh, so the first thing is really like evaluate: should I be building the thing I'm thinking about building? And the way to do that is is not there's not like a single unifying framework. It's it's more like I have to I should really be evaluating across a few dimensions, right? Around like like reasoning about well, what is the value of this application? Who is likely to benefit? How will they benefit? Who is likely to bear some costs? How, uh, like what are those costs and and how significant are they uh, and then also like if if I was within the population for whom this was targeted would this be something that is acceptable to me and if yes then why and if no then then why I think that's a, a great summary uh, you might want to also add on like am I uh, being compassionate when yeah. I do this, am I, uh, you know, am I basically being virtuous in, in doing this mm-hmm. is another way that you might do that. So, yeah, that's a great summary of different, again, mind tools that you yeah. can use yeah. to think about the work that you're doing. Um, I think I think I struggle with the what what if I were in the yeah. target population the most. And this is because I self-consciously know that my preferences are different from the normal population like I personally don't mind when software changes slightly in fact I, I enjoy the novelty of that um, where and like I like I've gone through a journey of reasoning around like experimentation and like thinking about loss aversion versus like what what you can discover through um, experimental controls. And for someone who hasn't done that they're gonna have completely different preferences and beliefs about that. And that, like, that makes it a real stroke. Like, that makes those types of conversations really difficult for me to have. Um, like, I see other people on Twitter doing product management fan fiction, and my reaction is, like, you'll forget about it in a week. And, like, I don't care as much that, like, Twitter changed their feed slightly um, as, like, I do. And I, those I, are I, pretty I innocuous that. examples. You could get well. I mean, I chose them because I'm me. <laughs> um, I I imagine that other people have similar struggles. Like I think, in particular, like data science is like it's a very different profession from what everyone else is doing throughout their day, and it like it deforms your expectations of what another human being would think or feel about things, and it yeah. limits your ability to do sympathetic imagination sometimes. I think I get your your concern. Actually, um, maybe to turn a little bit to some interesting questions we received um, in order to apply that concern in others. Mm-hmm. Um, so one question we received was uh, whether or not you can. There's an ethical, ethically acceptable way to deal with fraud models when geographic locations are highly correlated with uh, ethnic or linguistic groups that turn out to be highly predictive of fraud. So and that strikes close to home. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's like this starts to get into like how you're doing your work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So I because, feel like the details matter, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like no matter what ethical framework you have, 
you can twist it well, if you ignore the details, yeah. right? Yeah, because like obviously, like as a business, a fraud, uh, like even as as a society, like fraud models are probably something we want. Yes, yes. So I think we can at least put that like doing. Or am I doing something that I should be doing? Yeah. I think so. Okay, so, so check. We can put that to one side, right? Yeah. Check. Um, but then how do I do that well or correctly or right or in, in an ethical manner? Um, and to get to, to Otis's point about, um, about, well, what about if I'm reflecting on it as who I am, I'm bringing a whole bunch of baggage to it mm-hmm. that I should admit to. Right. So, um, for instance, uh, just to, to get into another context where it was really obvious, um, medical studies for many, many, many years were done exclusively on men and then the results were used to motivate treatments for women why did we do that for so long well it was implicit i don't think someone went out of their way and said you know hey i'm going to mwahaha exclude women and you know misapply these generalizations uh from men to them medically but the community in the past has been skewed that way and their defaults have been colored by that fact. So there's so a question like they, of like diversity here that yeah. may be interesting because so, we bring implicit biases. So it's so like that 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 community essentially like because that you're the the point that you're making is is because all of the medical researchers and all of the doctors were all men, they just had a giant blind spot about the populations that that, that they were that they were using to figure out what treatments worked. Also, the abuse of convenient sampling and things like that, yeah. where you're like, well, who's at hand? Right. My med students, who, who are they? Or, 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 you know, students of some kind. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, this has been changing, um, and I do think it is a good thing. Uh, and also the deliberate, you know, once, once we onboard that consciously, we can actually look for it and say oh shoot did i what does my population look like and what does that mean for for what i'm trying to get done mm-hmm. uh, so sampling issues um that's one lever we have right in doing the the job well um our truth values i think is another lever we have right so if you naively accept the, your truth values and what i mean by that is uh, so machine learning your labels for for um mm-hmm. supervised methods um if you onboard those without considering how they might be skewed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it can be real problems. So yeah. uh, I have an example from my work. So um, I uh, helped. I, I designed a, a machine learning model that's a predictive score for whether or not a likely transaction is uh, whether or not a transaction is likely to quote unquote go bad, meaning be associated with some wrongdoing mm-hmm. uh, after the fact, and. One bit of data that we do have that you might be tempted to use as a label is a deny. So we produce, we have basically hand-tuned rules that people implement against the transactions in real time that label them or you know bin them into allow, rev- review, and deny. So you might be tempted to use denies. If you do, though, people implement denies for policy. I don't do business in China. Everyone in China is denied, uh-huh. right? Um, that's just one example. Like it's a self-fulfilling. All I would do is replicate the rules that you happen to. Like, I would my machine learning model would find ways to to uh, replicate the logic that you're implementing in your your hand-tuned rules. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, but just so, to get to the nitty gritty, right? What I choose to accept as labels of wrongdoing, and whether or not you have recourse on those labels, like do you, do you get to actually um, question whether or not that label is appropriately applied? So if I'm if I'm not mistaken, some of this is is also kind of related to almost like the level of abstraction that you're working at with your labels. Uh, and also, like whether your data like is measuring what you actually think it's measuring, right? Yes. So, like you it's know, opinions all the way down, man. Um, I mean, you know, there have been a bunch of if you like if you look at all all of the analytics around venture capital, you'll basically find that like founders that come out of Stanford uh, have a much higher percentage of. of you know, of successful companies, <laughs> I, at least marked to like valuation at a certain point, and, and so and so essentially, like if you fit a model to that, it's basically going to tell you like if if you have like went to Stanford as a label in your model, like it's going to tell you just pick people from there, and like so. There's two issues with that. One is that it's probably not working. At the at the right level of abstraction, like there's something else about those fa- founders, either about them personally or the system that is selecting them, right? So so like the level of abstraction, the the uh, the level of abstraction maybe isn't like went to Stanford. It's like went to the best elite school that they had access to. Like might be a better label for you, assuming you believe that to 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 be valuable. And then there's a separate question of is this even measuring the thing that you think it's measuring because you're really using this as a proxy for is very intelligent, which can present in lots of ways. Yeah, and we're usually dealing with proxy labels even. Like I don't get direct truth values for a lot of the work that we do. I have like a proxy truth values. Neither does neither does Ian. Yeah, no, we we also don't. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like what is on a what is written on a doctor's bill is not a ground truth and what is like a, a diagnosis is like yeah. the primary traffic of, of yeah. healthcare yeah. and that's an so, opinion. Well, when you're I mean, when you're dealing with risk models like it's always proxy like the 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 deterministic part of the problem is a hidden variable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so exactly. So yeah. so questioning the ground truth, I think, is well, just good methodology. First off, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you, I, I don't think you can succeed. You can't make very good models without yeah. doing that. I think that there are better and worse ways to to uh, ethically to tackle that problem. If you have a direct representation of the class of concern in your data, mm-hmm. then you're probably going to codify whatever existing prejudice is there. So for instance, if I gender is one of my components directly of my model for a hiring model, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you may f- find that, geez, the fact that say, uh, for one reason or another, women don't hang out or you know stay long in some positions which may be due to lots of different things which you may be counting as them failing at the position uh you you it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling you know the model itself will tell you they won't succeed because of other exogenous yeah. issues right so, uh, and then thus reinforces their not being hired or, or something of that effect, right? Mm-hmm. There, there, there's dangers in, I think, and that gets to what I think you're saying, Ian, about the levels of abstraction. 
that you're talking about. Um, in his question, it has to do with geographic uh, location, like Nigeria, for instance. Not everyone in Nigeria is a, uh, you know, uh, looking to fish you. However, uh, you know, it, how to put it? There's no essence of Nigeria that is fishing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there may be transient geographic risks associated with fishing in certain locales, right? So one really poor thing to do is just reject everyone from Nigeria. Your false positive rate is ridiculously high by something that big and stupid, Mm -hmm. but you can make it more, you know, nuanced certainly, and you can allow it to update as things change. Uh, It doesn't get rid of this concern that this transient pattern is still going to target to some extent mm-hmm. those groups um it may you know you can't guarantee unless you like build it in not to uh and that's not the answer either right so i think the correct answer is something like what ian is saying which is you need to consider uh what the relevant level of abstraction is and in addition to that you need to consider whether or not your labels are prejudicial in a way that should be questioned and you also need to consider whether your samples are appropriate to the problem that you're dealing with. Right. So it sounds like the more data you have, the easier it is to make these choices, right? Like the 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 detail that you the richness of detail you have on who commits fraud and who doesn't um, can allow you to like hopefully isolate the right level of abstraction um, to target, but. I mean, I've seen that backfire too. Like, you can't, you like, for in the in the case of the hiring model, you there are lots and lots of employers that like manage to discriminate just fine, thank you, without using like male female as part of their their hiring model or the way that they evaluate the their hires. I mean, I I'm not sure that you solve the problem by leaving that variable out either. Right, because because if if you have two groups of people whose histories are very different, it's it's, it's not clear. Yeah, and like you're preferentially defining one set of histories as bad, mm-hmm. like that group of people will get rejected more often. If uh, and if there was something systematic causing that, you know, causing the badness, like your model is going to latch on to that. Yeah, so the equivalent of like uh, PC racism. I didn't say the word, but I can find lots of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's a rich history of this in employment. Yeah, um, I mean this. That's probably. I mean the uh, the the results of the Amazon hiring model that they just. Yeah, they probably didn't destroy, literally like, use like use protected variables in their model. Yeah, but they probably trained it on like a success set that was mostly male. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sampling maybe a uh, means uh, of, of I know that, for instance, in certain research studies uh, or or subpopulation type uh, approaches may, may be uh, mm-hmm. a way to tackle that methodologically. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm afraid there's no easy rote answer to yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, oh, it wouldn't hurt also to have more diversity <laughs> yeah. in the people who work on these sorts of problems yeah. just to up level in order to, to raise awareness of uh, things that you may not be paying attention yeah. to. So, but, so, so, I mean, if I'm a practitioner, though, kind of like the takeaway is, is I need to think very deeply about what is implicit in my data. Uh, and... I have some tooling to try to correct for that in terms of like, again, sort of the the level of abstraction at which I create my labels. 
uh, and how and like how I sample to a certain extent. But there may be problems that I eventually look at and I say, you know what, like my data set is too biased for me to get a good answer out of this. And that's w- and and at that point, I, I really should either be collecting more data uh, and kind of like, uh, you know, diversifying my sampling a little bit, uh, or I should be walking away from that problem. Yeah, if possible to also get a feedback loop of disputation or, you know, right. some trace of error. Not all applications allow you to get a trace on yeah. error. Well, yeah, I mean, that might be that might be the way that I would handle the problem of the, the anonymous data scientist that we were discussing is yeah. not to correct your model per se, um, but to say, look, the only evidence we have that this person is a fraudster is that they're from geographic location right. and then, therefore that and you shut it off for them well then they, they you know they enter into the a different view, yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah. like the yeah so, so so like like that was kind of the thing i was i was i i was gonna ask is basically like well if i think about the amazon model like assuming you knew that the model was going to be biased towards men like would it be okay to use that model only on men and and say okay well we know this doesn't work for women so we're going to route them through through a different process, uh, even even if that process presumably like might make it easier for for them to be hired. Like, is that a reasonable thing to do? Yeah, that is an interesting question. So it has to do with fairness. So uh, there, maybe an example from my own kids makes sense, right? My kids always, uh, if I treat my kids differently from one another, they accuse me of being unfair. The thing is, they're different people with different needs. And so I'm not going to treat them the same all the time. So not to be paternalistic about this, but I mean, (laughs) this is obviously a paternalistic example. Um, But what's appropriate in some cases is that I treat them differently. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, I think that that does make sense. Like it is like fairness is not, unfortunately for people who want to talk about ethics on podcasts, fairness is a central part of it. And it is not a concept that, generalizes right it is a try it it, it it to me it probably comes from a tribal sense like a core like relationships amongst human beings um thing and less a like there is a like this is clearly in the bounds of fairness and this is clearly not in the bounds of fairness um yeah i think that's probably worthy of its own episode in and of itself we are basically out of time here john has to go ian has to go um i have to do work <laughs> uh, so do I. <laughs> ian probably has to do work <laughs> john probably has to do work um, <laughs> um okay so it was great having you on john and i th- i thought like yeah, this, this was, was fun a great discussion yeah I, like i am surprised at how much fun it was to talk about ethics and to worry about ethics with 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 you you two so um yeah thanks for coming on uh is there anything you'd like to anything you want to promote no i am um, not really much on twitter though i guess i am what johnny logic on twitter actually if you look for johnny logic i'm usually the johnny logic wherever you're at nice <laughs> Way to, um, way to own, yeah, way to own I, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, known. All right, cool. Uh, the you can reach out to us on the podcast at of differences. Um, I will tease that we're going to be starting up a Patreon soon. 
um, and probably we'll have the full information in the next the next podcast. Um, you can also reach out to us at feed.back at, at smalldiffcast.com. Yeah. You can reach me uh, at ianblue1 on Twitter. And I'm at oldjacket on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you. <laughs>